0: You would please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of 2 Timothy. We resume our study there and are almost done with that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we are, we've been studying this final epistle to Paul, or to Timothy from Paul. Uh, As we know from just history itself, this is the final thing that Paul wrote, as you've heard me say many times. And these are some of the last things that Paul said. And so when we're focusing in on 2 Timothy, it should be particularly poignant that a man who knew his time was come, had come from the Lord, he would be departing this earth soon. These are some of the things that were on his mind that he wanted to communicate to his beloved son in the faith. And so. Not that this book is more important than others, so please, that's not what I'm saying at all, but this should grab our attention. When, 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 when someone knows that they're, they're leaving the earth, they're dying, they won't be here much longer, and there's a few things that they want to communicate, what those things are should catch our attention and really grab us because these are the things that are in the mind and heart of Paul when he's facing execution and it should actually encourage us. Because rather than drone on to Timothy about his circumstance, about the dire situation he's in, what does he say? Preach the Word, young man. Preach. Live. Do. Follow Christ. Live out the gospel. Live out the precepts of the gospel, lead others in faithfulness, stress faithfulness in your life. Beloved, do you hear what just pours out of him is gospel truth? Because this is a man, Paul, who has been captured by the gospel. And so, he spends his time rather than in sub- just solely in lament, but also in encouragement. These are some of his final thoughts. And so, this morning it should not be lost on us that Paul, in the face of death, has some logistical things that he wants to say to Timothy. So there's, there's the beauty of the spiritual, but then there's the reality of the logistical. But there's a theme running through these nine verses that we're about to read here that I want for us to capture, and you'll hear me come back to this, but it's the idea of hope. What did we just sing about a few moments ago? Just to make sure I get the words right. My memory is failing. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. Pain hardship, rain, storm. In the midst of that, there's a rainbow. What is the rainbow? It's God's promise to His people, to the earth. And so this morning, Paul reminds us here, reminding Timothy, he reminds us, there's hope. We have hope. We have genuine hope in the Lord without further delay, let us turn our attention to the Word. This morning, we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 18. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant Word. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me, "'Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. "'Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. "'When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Trous, "'also the books, and above all, the parchments. "'Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. "'The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. "'Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message.'" so in the reading of God's Word. May he add his blessing to it. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your Word, and, and thank you for the ailing and aging apostle under the direction of the Holy Spirit, clearly writing about important instructions and just things that were important to him in the moment. Oh, Father, help us to see your truth here on display and help it to transform us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when we think about survival situations, there's all kinds of shows on TV that simulate surviving in the situation, but nothing really compares to actually having to survive. Uh, One of the things that is intriguing to me is who survives those things and why? Why and how? who why and how those are those are really intriguing questions when you look at survival situations when we think about someone who's been lost or stranded or wrecked what what we've learned from survivors is it is just important your psychology as your physicality you've have, we will have people who are in in the in the you know the prime of their lives fit as a fiddle great strong who will die and then we've got records of 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 an entire plane wreck, one survivor It was a little girl. And you know what kept her alive? She just believed someone was gonna rescue her. The girl had hope. So she kept getting up every day, walking a little bit further, going to find help, looking for the rescue she expected was coming, and she lived. So when we look at survival situations, there is a settled psychology about it. The people who remain hopeful generally survive. The people who despair almost always die. No matter how fit they are, no matter how strong they are, no matter what they've accomplished in life or failed to do, it becomes the idea of the hope of rescue becomes a survival tactic when lost or stranded or wrecked. Now, Christians, that'll preach. Because what happens when we give in to despair? What happens when we give in to sadness? Or what happens when we we get lost or we're sidetracked in the wilderness? The one thing that Satan wants us to do is despair. The one thing that we have to do as Christians, we must remain hopeful. Because hope is a pillar from Christ, from God, through Christ to us. And so, beloved, this becomes an important aspect, a driving force in Christian life. When we read Paul's final thoughts and instructions to Timothy, what does he do? Well, if you notice, in the last few verses of that paragraph, what he highlights is God's deliverance. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, and through me the message might be fully proclaimed. The Lord will rescue me. What is he telling you there? He's not using the word hope, but that's what he's driving at. Paul is talking about trust here. The Lord will do this. I'm believing and trusting the Lord will do this. But what drives that trust for Paul is hope that the Lord will and can. And this is where when we are going through whatever wilderness we're in, we have to believe, we have to cling to, we have to remember that we hope in a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. Why do we pray in the face of of hard diagnoses, like Gardner just did a few moments ago? Because we have hope that the Lord can do things beyond our understanding. And we also have hope, if it doesn't turn out the way we would all like it to, that God will see us through moment by moment. So either way, the Christian has hope, and we can't lose it. We can't let it go. We can't trade it for a bowl of stew that gives us nothing. We have to remain hopeful. And beloved, that's not pie in the sky, bubblegum, cotton candy theology. That is biblical theology. That's not winking at sin or winking at heartache or or telling someone, you know, in, in their moments of grief, oh, cheer up, Jesus wins. Jesus does win. However, we can come alongside people and be conduits of the hope of the Lord as the Word washes through us and we share our lives and Word with other people. But, beloved, a lesson I'm having to learn is often we're quick to give hope to other people but very slow to hang on to it ourselves. We need to be as quick to press into the hope ourselves as we are to give it to other people, I was going to use a Lord of the Rings reference there, but I decided not to. But just so you know, Derek Thomas referenced Lord of the Rings at the conference, so I am vindicated. Um, Paul never lets us think that we will evade hardship in the Christian life. He never lets us think that. He doesn't, he doesn't let us get away from that reality. What he does do Is he gives us the formula for remaining hopeful in hard times. You know what it is? It's very simple. Trust in the Lord. Now, simple concept, right? I'm not saying it's simple to do. God walks with us through every valley and turn, and that's got to be something that inspires hope in us. Now, do you know why despair is easy? Do you know what's easy for us to despair? You know what's easy for us to lose hope? Well, because When we are focusing primarily on what we see and how we feel, that is an easy recipe for despair. But what happens when we as Christians begin to look beyond that? What is trust? What is faith? What is hope? Well, trust, faith, and hope, see, they are looking beyond what we see and feel to what is true, and that's what makes them difficult from time to time. It's because I'm having to look beyond this, what's right in front of me, the thing that's trying to grab my attention, beyond that to the ultimate truth behind it. That's hard for you. It's hard for me. It's hard for humans because we are tactile people. What we see, what we touch and taste and feel and experience has the loudest voice so often. What Paul is telling us here, in the face of death, what does he say? The Lord stood by me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. Paul is not assuming he's going to evade death, but he has hope in the Lord that God is going to be with him even in that deep, dark valley. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had it in the fiery furnace, just like Daniel had it in the lion's den, just like the apostles had it when they went out and they preached despite the fact they were told not to, just like every martyr has done it faithfully, from Jesus to the present. They didn't do it because they were reckless or dumb or stupid or somehow ignorant of the situation. They marched to the hymn of the Lord because, because they had hope. Hope, hope is a good medicine. So, life, the life of Paul... Rather was about to be given, and what did he do? What did he do? He chooses boldness. Why? Because the gospel is true, and it really does give hope. So, with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see. It's this: that the Lord's deliverance strengthens His people. That the Lord's deliverance, His rescue, strengthens His people. When you're looking at what we just read a few moments ago, you're, you're actually you're looking at something highly practical. Uh, Paul is talking about the movements of people, whether positive or negative. He's talking about his books and parchments and cloaks and final, some final instructions to, to Timothy, some warnings to Timothy. So what is Paul doing? He's a loving father. He's given some practical provision to his beloved son in the faith. Hey, be mindful of this. I want you to know this. Here's some information I need you to have. And these are some things that I want for you to do for me. Uh, so, so you're seeing the very personal but also practical Uh, nature of this communication. But here's the thing. When you look at what's on display here, verses 9 to 13, you're you're looking at a… Paul's talking about communion and the lack thereof. By communion, I mean fellowship with other people, not the Lord's Supper. And so, when you're looking at this, here's the thing that we've got to understand that Paul is hitting on something that is true, that we all need communion with God, right? We all need to be in relationship with God. That's I mean, that's an established point. We also need to be in communion with other people. We're not isolated. It's not me and Jesus and all I need. God has created us to have relationships and meaningful ones, not shallow, not cheap, real meaningful relationships. And we see when Paul feels the absence of them and when Paul sees them discarded. It's right here. This is an important passage of Scripture regarding how we understand Christian relationships. And so Paul in the face of death, wants well, companionship, a uh, natural desire, I think. He doesn't just want to die alone. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a hero in the faith, of course. He's a human being. I'm sure there was a little bit of anxiety about his, impen, his, uh, his, coming, his death that was coming down the pike. And so, like any normal person, he wants the closeness of relationship with people, some of those people that have loved him well and served with him. Well, he wants that. And he's teaching us of a good biblical desire is companionship, but it needs to be companionship that honors the Lord. So, not just any companionship. We live in a day and an age where the companionship is just defined by if this makes me feel good or it pleases me inwardly, this is good companionship. It doesn't work that way. That's another sermon for another time, but I'm talking about a companionship that honors the Lord. He starts out, do your best to come to me soon, express command. This is not a request. Paul is telling Timothy, come to me, my son. I need you to come to me soon. So he's desiring Timothy's Timothy's presence, being present for one another. That's a real need. How often are we trying to engage people? You know, so often when we are feeling the weight of our own trials, we tend to isolate. We want to back off and just... And I get that. I personally sometimes need that alone time to process in my mind what's happening before I engage in relationship. Paul's had that. He's now ready for some relationship, right? So, Timothy, come to me. I, I need your presence. And then he launches into the first negative mention. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, I want to stop and say why that that is arresting right on the outset. It's arresting because of the abandonment, the desertion. But it's arresting because previously in other letters, Paul has mentioned Demas very positively. Demas had been a companion to Paul. He had been a friend to Paul. He had been all the things that Paul needed as, as a good servant in the Lord. But now he's left Paul, what does Paul say, for love of this world. Well, when you read that, for love of this world, Read Rejection of the Truth in the Face of Hardship. It's gotten difficult, so Demas has decided, I would rather flee to Thessalonica than stand with the Apostle Paul. So do you know what this tells us? And this is a hard truth, but one we have to deal with, that people we love and have served with will desert us. And if you live any amount of time, you will find from time to time that it's the people that you least expected would desert you are the very ones who do it. And so what does that mean? Does that mean we just shy away from a relationship and we quit making relationships so that we can get into self-protect mode? Absolutely not. That's exactly what it doesn't mean. Love people. Serve people. Develop relationships with people. But hope in God. Our hope is not in people. We can find real joy in relationships. When you find those friends that you click with, you find real joy in those relationships. And that's what makes a betrayal or a desertion all the more painful. If we are betrayed and deserted and we don't feel a deep pain in our soul, we haven't been doing the relationship right. It hurts because we've invested. And God be with you when and if you experience that. It is a painful road to walk but don't stop investing in people. It's a worthy cause because we see when done right, Paul is like, do your best to come to me because Timothy, at the, at the precipice of my death, it's you that I want there. And what an honor to walk with people in their hardest times. I pray you have those in your life and I pray you are those in your life. He then moves on. D- Demas has deserted him for the present world, gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. And, down, and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Now, Crescens, we know nothing about him. We know nothing about Crescens. All we know is is that he's gone to Galatia, and he has gone with the blessing of Paul. It seems here this is more positive. Paul has sent him to Galatia to do work. So he's dispatching people, knowing he's about to die. He's sending people out on the field, getting them in position. Titus is the Titus of the letter. Titus, who had been in Crete, apparently his time in Crete. Was up, and Paul is now sending him to a new work, to do a new labor, for a new service. Again, Paul's mind at at the point of his death is on making sure that the church of of God is still going strong. Now, what is interesting about this? He mentions to Timothy that they're gone. You know what that tells you? You know what it tells me? He felt their absence. He felt their absence in this moment of, of hardship and trial that he felt the absence of people, of these two brothers in particular. Obviously, he's feeling the absence of of Timothy. And as I was thinking through this this past week, it put the question in my mind, and so I asked this question of you. Do we love in such a way that people feel our absence? Now, this is not like we want people pining away for us when we're not there. I mean, I kind of do want that, if, if, if I'm being honest. I kind of want people to pine a little bit when I'm not around, thinking, oh, if Brad were here, um, and I'm only halfway joking on that. Um, so it's not like we just want people pining and, and, and sad when we're not around, but we do want our absences felt. We want to love in such a way that our absences are felt, serve in such a way that our absences are felt, because when our absence is felt, we know that we are loving and serving, and everything has to be done right Within a framework of what's realistic, there are sometimes we just can't. Uh, we're going to read that later on in the paragraph. There are some people that weren't with Paul, and it wasn't because they didn't want to be; it was they were prohibited because they couldn't be there. But beloved, do we love so well that when we are not there, our absence is felt? I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. And do we thank? The people in our lives. Do we take time to show gratitude to the people in our lives when they're not there? We feel their absence. Do we often encourage them, brother or sister, you are a good friend to me, and when when you know, when, when I'm going through a trial and you're not walking with me through it, I feel your absence. Um, but don't do it as a manipulative thing, right? I'll let that one settle. Um, <clears throat> Paul continues. Luke alone is with me. I want to stop right there. Luke, the faithful companion, the model of faithful friendship through all. If you find Paul in Acts and a lot of his trials, often he speaks of Luke being with him. Now, there are some conjectures as to why Luke stayed with him. Some try to get very specific. Well, Paul was aging and ailing, and he needed the company of a physician. That may be true. But since it never says that specifically, what I'd like to think is that Luke just saw the ministry worth it and he stuck with his friend. Because when all else had abandoned him now or had been dispatched, Luke alone was with him and being a faithful friend. And when we look at Luke's ministry to Paul, his faithfulness, that that is how friendship should look. Love, sacrifice, service, companionship, encouragement, and sometimes challenging. Sometimes the word of reprove, sometimes instruction, but always faithful. Mark is an interesting note that he mentions here. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Now, that's another arresting statement. Remember, in Acts, when Paul and Barnabas split apart, they split apart over Mark, Mark had been with Paul and Barnabas on mission. Mark decided he needed to leave. Paul was not happy with that decision and refused to take him again. And yet here we are. Here we are now. We find Paul saying, please bring Mark with you, Timothy, when you come, because he is useful to me. I love this because this is getting at something that we have to be remind, are, are mindful of, that there is growth and maturity in the Lord, that we're all in process, that we're all growing and maturing in the Lord. And Paul could have easily slammed the book on Mark and, and never given him another chance, but he doesn't. So you know what that tells us, beloved, a little point of application? We need to be really slow to write people off. Now, that's not saying be unwary. That's not saying be unwise. That's not saying use good judgment. But we need to be very slow to write people off just because in a moment they do something we think is wrong or immature or, or even sinful, that we're going to take some time to let the Spirit do His work, watch them grow, and mature in the Lord. We all need room to grow. You need it. I need it. Everybody needs it. So we need to be faithful to love. We need to be wise to not put ourselves in situations that are easily avoidable. But we need to be patient in the Lord's work in people's hearts. Paul continues on, a very terse comment, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. This is just purely a dispatch. Tychicus is mentioned several times in the New Testament, and almost all of them Paul calls him a faithful servant. So you're, you're getting a glimpse of a man that he has sent to Ephesus. Now, it's interesting. Timothy's in Ephesus. Why is he sending Tychicus to Ephesus? Because he's recalling, calling Timothy home to him but he's making sure that Ephesian church is squared away. So even in bringing his beloved son home, he is sending another faithful servant out to the field to make sure that some faithful, godly, uh, gospel-preaching man is there to stand his post for his commitment and for the good and glory and truth of the Lord. So I love the fact that Paul wants to see his friend, but he also wants the church to be led well, so he he covers both. Now, verse thirteen. Look what Paul says. He says, "When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Trous. Also the books above the part above all, and above all, the parchments." And I'm going to go ahead and read verse fourteen because these two work together. I think Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, when we look at verse thirteen. One of the first questions we <laughs> want to ask is, who is Carpus? And we don't know. Uh, this is the only mention of, of Carpus in the New Testament. Why are, why are Paul's things at Trous? That's a good question. That's a question many people have asked, and the answer is we're not exactly sure. There is a theory or a conjecture that I am very partial to for reasons I'm going to make plain here in just a moment. Why are Paul's things in the care of Carpus at Trous? Well, it's probable or, or likely or possible that that's where Paul was arrested the second time and taken into custody. And so, some of his personal effects were left in the care of this brother who was in church there, and the church there. And so, now that Paul has been arrested, he is on trial, he knows that his cloak, his book, and his parchments are there. He wants Timothy to swing by Trous on his way to grab his personal belongings. Now, why the cloak? Well, the cloak that Paul mentions here would be something a little thicker than just his outer garment so that in a dank, wet, cold jail cell, he could keep warm. So, in all seriousness, I'm not trying to be funny here, Paul's just looking for a little creature comfort at the end of his life. He doesn't want to just die cold. He'd like to be warm. And I don't blame him. I hate being cold. I, I relate with this one. Even if I'm dying, I want my jacket if It's cold but then he asks for his books or books and parchments so this would the distinction between these two would be one would be sets of scrolls and the other would parchments would be like animal skins a little bit more expensive and so the scrolls to read and the parchments to most likely take notes and write so as paul is about to be killed he wants to execute it. He wants to stimulate his mind in the face of death. He wants to read his scrolls, a lot of which is probably the Old Testament. He wants to write letters if he gets the chance. He wants to take notes. He wants the capacity to read and write, to study and think in his moment of pain. You know what I love about that? Is it gets add a mindset of, I'm not going to stop growing and learning until I'm not on this earth. I'm not going to stop pursuing the Lord until I'm not on this earth. I'm not going to stop trying to be a blessing to others until I'm not on this earth. In my last moments, I'm going to serve the Lord and serve others. But, you know, when it's, when you're aging and, and ailing, it's, it's easy to turn inward. It's easy to get so self-absorbed and self-focused. And, and to some degree, I, I don't blame people who do. And you're just eaten up with this the reality that you're dying. However, Paul teaches us, don't, maybe don't do that. Maybe turn outward. Maybe continue to look to the Lord in hope. Maybe continue to serve other people that they might have hope. I know that circumstances limit us. They limit us all. You have circumstances. I have circumstances. We all have circumstances that limit us in capacities. But maybe we pray for ways in which we can do what we can do, when we can do it, in service to the Lord and for the love of our brothers and sisters. Why do I think that verse 14 helps bring a little bit of clarity to verse 13? Well, what you're getting at in verses 14 to 18 is the opposition that Paul dealt with. That's one. And so, he, he mentions this guy by name, Alexander. Well, Paul, who's faithful, is, of course, giving us a little bit of reminding here. If we're going to be faithful, we're going to deal with opposition. That's just a central idea. But Alexander, this Alexander the coppersmith, he said, did me great harm. Now, why would I think that 14 gives a little help to 13? Because there was a trade guild of coppersmiths in Trous. And so when he says Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm there's a couple of questions we have to, we can answer. Is this an Alexander who's probably in a copper guild at Trous probably? Is this the same Alexander that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy with Hymenaeus as having been excommunicated? Probably not. That Alexander was a common name back then, and that Paul wants to make sure that Timothy understands this is, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Why would Timothy need to be aware of Alexander the coppersmith? Because he's in Trouse, and he knows that Timothy has to go through Trouse to get those effects and belongings of Paul. And so it is possible that Alexander is the one who got Paul arrested. But look at what Paul says here. This, to me, is as miraculous as anything. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. No malice, no vindictiveness, no hatred. God will take care of it. Beloved, do you know what that is? Hope. It's hope. Hope in the justice of God. Hope in the goodness of God. Hope in the righteousness of God. When we hope in the justice, goodness, and righteousness of God, we are freed from vindictiveness. Be easy to be vindictive for someone who got you arrested and possibly executed. Be very easy. But when we put our trust and hope in the Lord, it relieves us of this idea that we have to see vengeance done. We can leave it up to the Lord. Not an easy task, but it is a biblical one. But, so he does caution Timothy there, this is where we have to have faith and trust in God's protection, but we need to be wary of people. Timothy, <laughs> be on your guard. Yes, the Lord will be with you. The Lord will help you, but be wary of people who are false. We need to be wise. That's, even Jesus would say that. So he cautions Timothy against Alexander saying, be wary of him. That's an express command, by the way. He strongly opposed our message. So, yes, we need to trust the Lord. And yes, we need to be wary of people who can do harm, or at least bad philosophies working through people, because Paul says we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Paul continues, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me may it not be charged against them. Now, here's another question we have to answer. First defense, what's he referring to there? Because if you go on and you read, um, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. There are two prevailing thoughts on how you understand this. One is that when Paul talks about his first defense, no one came to stand by me. Paul is making a reference to the first time he was arrested, was put on trial, gave testimony to the Lord, and was ultimately released. Hence, people will say, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. At that time, he was uh, rescued from execution. The other thought is that uh, this is the first defense of his second arrest. Now, the Romans had ways of having multiple trials, and so Paul would be making a reference that this last time he was arrested at his first defense, that he was abandoned, which accords well with everything he's already said right here. He's already told you he was by himself. So it's my thinking that Paul is making a reference to the first trial at the second arrest, and at that time, the, the, no one came to stand by him. All deserted me, may not be charged against him. Now, some people deserted and some people couldn't make it, and so he was by himself. But we understood that he says, but the Lord stood by me, and the Lord strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles who might hear it. So the Gentiles who heard it would have been all the Gentiles at court who would have heard this man's message, testimony, and, and uh, his, his testimony of God's faithfulness to him through hard times. And so when we talk about the Lord strengthening Paul to do what, beloved? To do exactly what he told Timothy to do, to preach the Word. Paul's focus here is on the strength to do what God has called him to do. And that becomes a powerful, powerful lesson to us, that God, in some senses, had delivered him from destruction, that He saved him once, then his first trial, Paul found favor with people. But of course, we know the second trial would come, and ultimately, Paul would be executed. But what I love is what he says here. So, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. Do you know what that tells you? Paul's focus is not on escaping the knife, escaping the hangman, escaping the pit. That's not his focus. What his focus is, is hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your Father's rest. See, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me where? Safely into His heavenly kingdom. There's one word that sums up this, and it's called hope. Hope that, lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day when the saints triumphant rise and bride away. The King of glory passes on His way. Hallelujah. Hallelujah some of the best lines ever written right there, because of that those are lines of hope. The Lord delivers His people. What is Paul's response to God's ultimate deliverance even in the face of execution? To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Doxology, praise, worship. He's about to die, and He's worshiping. When we think about the Lord's rescue, beloved, the Lord's rescue strengthens us in every season that we're in. That we're in. Paul stands here as a shining example of what it means to both live and die well, and he does. this is exactly what's going on. Now, keep in mind, to Timothy, Paul called himself the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. That's what Paul has, how Paul described himself. So this is not about being perfect this is about trust. This is about trust in the Lord. This is about hope in the Lord. You and I, we face all kinds of trials. So the question is, is what's going to keep us grounded in the valley of shadow? And it's this pressing truth that we're not our own, but as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. God has delivered His people from sin and death through Christ. That is real. That is true. And if you're in Christ this morning, that is true of you. God has delivered you from sin and death in Christ. You have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to have hope. And God not only preserves us, though, he keeps us through every trial and hardship. Yeah, we feel the sting. We feel the pain. We feel the deep lament sometimes from the things we have to face. But we're not turned out we are kept. We're kept people. We are the kept. We could just describe ourselves that way. We are the kept because we are kept by God, pres- preserved. Satan wants us to despair. The world feeds off despair. Beloved, why do you think, you know, I know I, come, I keep coming back around to the whole idea of, of the, the sexual ethic of the world, but why do you think they want to feed into the despair of young people so that they can destroy their bodies, destroy their minds, destroy their hearts, and rob them of life. That's what Satan and the world want people to do. They love despair, because in despair, people will turn to almost anything for healing. This is where we Christians need to say, come, come to the gospel, come to the gospel, come to the gospel, where you find healing and rest for our weary souls. Satan wants us to despair, but God wants to liberate us from despair by reminding us of our great rescue, by reminding us we're rescued. And beloved, that is a hopeful truth. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this Word this morning and the conviction that I feel and hopefully others feel about, man, how how do we live our lives more hopeful Oh, Lord, give us hope. Give us hope, I pray. Renew us in hope, I pray. Renew our sense of trust, I pray. Renew our lives, I pray. Oh, Father, we hope in you. Help us to hope, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.